Let's pray before we open the word uh, this morning together. Our Father, we do come before you this morning as those in need. Like a beggar would reach out their hands for alms, so we reach out our empty hands to you. And we say that we are in need. We are in need from what can only be supplied from heaven. Would you feed us by your word and according to your spirit this morning? Would you take your word and plant it deep in our minds and our hearts and our souls? And help wayward and needy and feeble and frail people. With the strength that can only come by your grace can come only by Your Word. May Your Spirit be active in our midst and be active in us and through us this morning for Your glory. In Christ's name, Amen. Matthew chapter 13, verses 53 through 58 this morning. This is the holy, inerrant Word of God. And when Jesus had finished these parables, He went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. The grass withers and the flower fades. The Word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. We see a transition here in the Gospel of Matthew. We have been looking at it over uh, a number of weeks uh, back at the end of the year where we were looking through Matthew 13 and you saw Jesus teaching on the kingdom, His kingdom, and He was teaching all of these different parables that were to help us to understand His kingdom coming into the world and what that meant for the world. And now we're told here, at the end of chapter 13, after Jesus finished these parables, He went away from there. That is, He left that region, Capernaum. And now, as Matthew tells us, He came, quote, to His hometown. So Jesus' base of ministry during His earthly ministry life was the city of Capernaum. The place of His birth was Bethlehem. The place of His childhood, of His early years, was Nazareth. This is His hometown. You remember that when Mary and Joseph went down to Egypt, and then when they came out of Egypt, as we see in Matthew 2, they went to the town of Nazareth. And it's there in the town of Nazareth that Jesus lived from probably the age of 2 until the age of 30. And it's there 
that we see him in this text. He's back home. And Jesus, as he is back home, he goes to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Luke tells us in Luke 4 that this was Jesus' custom. That is, even our Lord and our Savior saw it as necessary, saw it as essential that He would gather together with God's people on the Sabbath day to worship God. This was His custom, His practice. And it's to be our custom. It's to be our practice. The synagogue was the precursor of the church. But this has always been the way of God's people, that God's people gather together to worship God on the Sabbath day. So if you think back all the way to the tabernacle, they would gather together before the tabernacle as a people of God to worship God. Then when it journeyed to the temple, and the temple was built, the people of God gathered together with one another to worship God in corporate worship. And then in 586 B.C., when Solomon's temple was destroyed and the Jews are scattered out across the Mediterranean world, they built synagogues. Literally houses of prayer so that they might gather together, whether they were in Antioch or Egypt or Damascus or up in Turkey, that they might gather together with fellow believers to worship God. And when they return back to the land, after the restoration to the land, the Jews will build synagogues throughout the land to gather together in corporate worship to worship God. The church, what we're doing this morning is modeled upon what was practiced in the synagogue. What we see in Acts and what we see in the epistles of the New Testament is taking the same model of what the people of God have always done when they gather together, so the church began to do. You open the Word. You read the Word. You preach the Word. You sing. You pray together before your God. This has always been necessary and essential for God worshipers. That we gather together to worship our God. And so as was Jesus' custom, he went into the synagogue in his hometown to worship with the people of God. Imagine the scene, you have a synagogue that is filled with Jesus' hometown friends and family, these people that he has grown up with, that he has known and he would have walked to the front of the synagogue and as was the custom at this time, he would have stood and he would have unrolled the scroll and he would have read from the Scriptures to the people. And then as was the custom, after he read it, he would have taken a seat in the front and then he would have preached. He would have explained, made clear the, the sense of the text that he had just read. He read the Word and he preached the Word. And what do we see as a result? I want to observe three points from this text this morning. First, the uncommon wisdom and power of Christ. Second, the common rejection of the people. And third, the uncommon danger of unbelief. 
So first, the uncommon wisdom and power of Christ was on full display in the synagogue. Jesus stands up, He reads the Scriptures, and then He preaches the text. How long was the sermon? We don't know. What were the points of His sermon? We don't know. What did He say in the sermon? We don't know. But as He spoke, the effect was immediate. Matthew says, quote, the people were astonished. They were astonished. And when we ask, what were they astonished by? Two things are identified in the text. They're both found in the question the people ask in verse 54. Where did this man get, and then they name two things. Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? They're astounded by his wisdom. And they're astounded by his mighty works, that is, his power. I want to take the last first and look at those two things. Take the last first. They're astounded by his mighty works, that is, his power. Now, we don't see him in the text doing any mighty works. We don't see Him doing any miracles in their midst. And, and I would guess, and I think it's a good educated guess, that He didn't do any miracles in their midst based upon verse 58. But rather, what has happened is the people of Nazareth have heard of the miracles that Jesus has done in the surrounding area. Jesus was on everyone's lips. You can't do the things Jesus did and it not circulate. I mean, he would have been the headline story on the nightly Nazareth news. What Jesus has done over there. It's amazing. No one has done anything like this before. They would have heard, as we've seen in the Gospel of Matthew, that he cleansed a leper, that he cast out demons, that he calmed the storm, that he healed a paralytic, that he healed blind men, that He restored a withered hand, that He brought back a girl from death to life. And they're astonished. They know this. They know He's done these things. Notice that's what the text implies. There wasn't doubt about whether He had actually done these things. They knew about His mighty works and were astonished by them. They were not skeptics about whether He had actually done it or not done it. Rather, the only question was, where did this man get such power from to do these things? What's the answer to that? We could turn to various passages, but I think the best at least one of the best is Acts 2, where Peter is standing there at Pentecost and he is preaching, and he is preaching to these Jews in Jerusalem who have seen Jesus do mighty miracles and wonders and signs. And as he's preaching to them, Peter says, Men of Israel, hear these words Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through Him in your midst as you yourselves know. Again, notice they knew. They had seen the miracles. They had seen the mighty signs. They had seen the wonders. 
But where does this authority and power to do these mighty things come from? Well, Peter is very clear. From God. It's from God. God the Father's works are seen in the works of the Son. There's a mutual indwelling of the Father in the Son and in the Son in the Father. He is distinguished from the Father and yet He is one with the Father. And it is with the very authority of God as very God of very God as we just confessed this morning that Jesus does these mighty works. It's with the very power of God. Because He is God. The works are a clear attestation of His authority and power. They, they, they had evidence. But they shouldn't have needed it. Because when He spoke, people knew what He said had uncommon authority and wisdom. They said, where did this man get this wisdom as home people, hometown people as? It's a common refrain throughout the Gospels. We see it over and over when Jesus teaches. He has an authority like people have not seen before, like they have not heard before. Mark 1.22, and they were astonished at His teaching. For He taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Mark 1.27, and they were all amazed. So that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. Luke 4.32, and they were astonished at His teaching. For His word possessed authority. Where does this uncommon wisdom and authority come from? Jesus tells us in John 14 when He says this. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does His works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. What works is He talking about? He's talking about the works of the words that He is speaking. That as His words go out, they take those who are trapped in darkness and bring them into the saving light. He speaks with the authority of the Father. Because He and the Father are one. When Jesus speaks, He doesn't speak like the prophets of old. He he doesn't need to say, as they would say, thus saith the Lord. He simply speaks. In fact, He will say in the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, with authority. He doesn't need to quote great teachers from the past, renowned rabbis like the Pharisees. He simply speaks. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. There's no need to rely upon others, for as He speaks to His people, the Father speaks to His people. There is the authority of heaven in the words of Jesus. God thunders 
on earth as much in the Sermon on the Mount as He did at Mount Sinai. And the people of Nazareth knew it. Here is an authority like no other. Here is wisdom like no other. But they rejected. And that leads to our second point. The common rejection of the people. They've been met with uncommon wisdom, uncommon power. And yet they rejected. Is not this the carpenter's son, they ask? Is not this Mary's boy? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Can't we right now as we're sitting in the synagogue point to those who are his sisters that are among us? They saw uncommon wisdom and power, but they could not see beyond his common origin. And in one sense, you say, well, this is, this is somewhat understandable. You think about it, you think, well, Jesus spent close to 30 years with them in this hometown. He doesn't begin his public ministry until he was 30 years old, and most likely... He labored as a carpenter over those years. He took over his father's business. and So when you were on your way to the fields, or maybe you were on your way to the well to draw some water, it's quite possible that they would have passed by Jesus as He's working in a shop or working out in front of His home. Maybe some of them had chairs or a table or a bowl that He had made. Well, clearly they did in one sense. He's the maker of all things. But here's a man that they knew. They knew his common childhood. They, they knew his common parents. They knew his common siblings. They knew his lack of education. In fact, in John 7, when the boy Jesus is down in Jerusalem and he is teaching with authority and wisdom that is not in line with his age, those Jewish religious leaders will, quote, marvel at him. And they'll ask, how has this man become learned, having never been educated? They, they knew his lack of education. They knew his lack of pedigree. They knew his lack of training. So they simply treat him as common and will not accept him. What should have taken their eyes and their gaze to heaven. We are amazed at the might and the power and the wisdom of this man who we know it should have lifted their eyes to heaven and sought the answer there. It brought them to earth. And rejecting Him. But this was no surprise to Jesus. It was just as the Son and the Father and the Spirit had Decreed from eternity past. In fact, God will ordain Isaiah to write about it 700 years before the Messiah even comes, that the Messiah's lot in this life would be one of rejection. Isaiah 53, he prophesies, for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. And no beauty that we should desire Him. 
He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Rejected. Theologians often talk about the active and passive obedience of Christ, that both are, are necessary for our salvation. That active obedience of Christ, that that Christ as the second Adam had to fulfill what the first Adam could not and did not do. Whereas the first Adam was not obedient to the law and was not righteous and did not honor God with all of his life, so the second Adam came into the world to uphold the standard of God. And he lived a completely pure life without stain, without sin, without blemish. His active obedience. Actively obedient all his life. And his passive obedience is is often spoken of the cross, that as He was upon the cross, and as Isaiah 53 says, that He was smitten and He was afflicted and He was bruised for our iniquities. He was crushed for our sake. That is His passive obedience. A chastisement that brought us peace. But as you see here, the passive obedience of Christ, that suffering of Christ was not relegated to the hours upon the cross, but suffused in His entire earthly life. His entire earthly life was one of rejection. His entire earthly life was one of persecution. He was despised. He was rejected. This was the common response. No man has suffered more injuries from his fellow men than Christ. No one has endured more sorrows and been more acquainted with grief than Christ. When we say to one another, we will say it to to give comfort to one another. Remember, you have a a merciful and and faithful high priest who was made like his brothers in every respect. That's not a throwaway line. One who sympathizes with us with, with greater knowledge and experience than any of us will ever endure or know. This little scene here in Matthew is just a shadow. Just a shadow of the overall rejection that Jesus, the the very Son of God, will receive from those who were created to embrace Him. And they had the evidence. They had the evidence of his, His uncommon wisdom and and power and might. And yet they reject him. The religious elites will do the same. The, the Pharisees and the scribes, they know the prophecies. They, 
know His might and His power and His wisdom. They recognize it time and again in the Scriptures, and yet they will plot to kill Him. The cultural elites and the Sadducees will plot as well against Him and oppose Him. The common people will yell for the release of Barabbas, a prisoner who is a renowned insurrectionist, even as they they chant for Jesus, let Him be crucified. You think on that. I was thinking about that this morning when we were singing holy, holy, holy and thinking in that moment there are angels before the throne who are singing holy, holy, holy to Him. While those who are created in His image on earth are chanting, crucify, crucify, crucify Him. It's rejected. He's rejected by common people. He's rejected by the religious elites. He's rejected maybe more hurtfully by his neighbors. He was rejected even more hurtfully by his family members. And maybe most of all, as we take it all in scope and we say He's rejected by those who were created in His very image. To reflect forth His image to the world. To give Him glory. How does that happen? They don't doubt the miracles. They know that they've occurred. They don't argue against His teaching. They recognize His uncommon wisdom and power. And yet they reject Him. Why? Matthew tells us why in no uncertain terms. In verse 57. They took offense at Him. Jesus is offensive. offensive. That word is a word we get scandalized from. They were scandalized by him. I was in Grand Traverse Pie Company uh, this week, meeting one of you for lunch. I was good. I didn't have pie. Uh, didn't have a salad either, but I didn't have pie. And I was waiting for the lunch appointment to show up, and while I was standing there, I, I saw a, what I would judge to be an American who was sitting with an international scholar, an Asian, at a table. And the American was holding up his Bible, and he was going through the Gospel of John this international scholar, line by line, verse by verse, and he would read a verse and then he would explain it to him. And the international scholar would ask a question and then he would go to the next verse and read it. And my little Christian heart was just doing jumps and leaps of joy. While I was walking by them, I heard laughter out of, on the side. And so I, my gaze was directed to a table that was behind them it was a man and a woman who were sitting there and it was very quickly clear to me that they were laughing at 
these two that were reading the Bible together. And then I watched their whole countenance change. And, and what was laughing became a kind of disdain. And I watched as the one that had their back to the two that were studying the Bible take out their phone and hit the, the camera button to flip around the camera so that it was pointed at them and they were positioning it to take a picture of what they found to be a disgusting scene while they were eating lunch. They weren't just disappointed in what they saw. They were offended by it. Why? Because Jesus is offensive. saw in Matthew 10 that Jesus said, I came not to bring peace but a sword that is, and we should note as we're coming to the close of Matthew 13, that as Jesus' kingdom comes into the world, the world will oppose that kingdom. And as His kingdom goes out, opposition against that kingdom will come. And that brings conflict. That brings disgust. That brings offense. Darkness does not like light. Evil does not embrace good. Wrong will not accept right. Rebels don't want a wise and powerful king. These Nazarites are offended. Not primarily by what was taught, though surely they were offended by that. Not primarily about what Jesus did for the sake of others, though maybe they were offended by that, but by who He was. Who He claimed to be. And so it's true for those people in Grand Traverse. It's what Jesus is that offends. Nazarites didn't lack evidence for the truth. They just didn't want the truth. They rejected Jesus' words because they didn't want His words. They rejected Jesus as King because they didn't want Him as their King. It's never a lack of evidence that keeps people from trusting and following Christ. It's always unbelief. Unbelief is the great enemy of the soul. And it always has been since since the fall in the garden. It's not something outside the man or something outside the woman or it's outside the child that prevents them from coming to God in Christ. But that which was within the man, within the woman, within the child that keeps us from coming to Christ. And that is unbelief. And what is within knows it's threatened when Christ comes and His Word is proclaimed. We don't like to see ourselves in the mirror of Christ and His Word because it tells us that we're ugly. That there's sin. That there's, this is not perfect. That I'm not what I was created to be. That I'm not independent in and of myself. That I need something outside of myself. We don't like that. 
often hear that refrain, well, give me more evidence and I'll believe. But that's not the problem. Unbelief is the problem, not the evidence. As Augustine once famously said, he said, we believe in order to understand. We don't understand in order to believe. We believe in order to understand. There was a, reportedly in the 20th century, there was a newspaper that had asked a question of its readers, and the question was, what's wrong with the world? And famously, G.K. Chesterton wrote to the editor of that paper, he said, dear sirs, I am. Sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. That's a man who understands. He understands the problem with sin and unbelief is the great problem. That's within. It's within me. And unbelief is something that we're all wrestling with. All of us in this room. Even as a Christian, You can pray that prayer of that man with the daughter. You can say, I believe, but help me in my unbelief because there's unbelief in here. One of the greatest instigators of unbelief is what we see here in the text that the familiar often breeds contempt. Jesus said, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. That is, we treat with contempt that which is common. And you see this throughout biblical history and church history and just societal history. You think back to the prophets and how many, all of them are rejected. You think about some of the great preachers and great evangelists in the history of Christendom and They're despised by their churches and many of them fired by their churches. And we say, how can that be? You think of our own families and that we will be the harshest in judgment with our spouse and with our children or we will be quick to criticize those that are leaders in our communities and mock them though they are making sacrifices for our communities that we would never make. We can see it in practice too. What we know commonly, week in and week out, we can dismiss. It's yet another Sunday. And here we are again. And so we sing the songs, we pray, we confess, we we hear the Word. Nothing grips us. Nothing affects us. We know it all, or so we think. Worship grows stale. The familiar has bred contempt. And oh, to be on guard against such arrogant familiarity. We'll sing that song, Tell Me the Old, Old Story, but honest, too many of us are tired of the old, old story. It never be. And we never tire of Christ. May He never become common to us. 
was uh, just recently listening to a sermon where a preacher made a, a few jokes in a sermon to get a laugh, and two or three of his punchlines were Christ. Christ is not a punchline. He is a sovereign Lord of heaven and earth. There is nothing common about Him. And He is our Savior and our friend. cross should never bore us. The word red should never seem routine to us. When those things happen, it is a form of unbelief. And there is incredible danger there. Augustine used to compare faith to, um, or belief to, um, a spout on a, on a jar. And he would say unbelief is like the stopper that is put in the, the spout of the jar. So that when God is pouring out the, the goodness of His grace and the blessing of that good wine, it is faith that is the receptacle that receives it. And it's unbelief that stops it from flowing. In fact, that's what Matthew says at the close of this passage, verse 58. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. And here we have our final point, the uncommon danger of unbelief. Mark will say it even more boldly in Mark 6.5, the parallel passage to this gospel, his account of the same thing. He will say that Christ could not perform any miracle there. Now wrap your head around that. He could not perform any miracle there. How can you say that, Mark? Or why do you say that, Matthew? Now, it cannot be that Christ did not have the power to perform such miracles there. He's sovereign God. He's God of God and light of light and very God of very God. He can perform what He wills in whatever place. Mankind never dictates to God what He does or cannot do. He's sovereign. But rather, it is as Jesus said to that Canaanite woman, there's no point in throwing out your pearls before swine. It's a, it's a waste of time. There's no receptivity there, so He will not work there. They will not receive, so He will not give. What we have is taken away, as Jesus speaks about in the, the parable of the talents, unless we use it. And that is dangerous, dangerous ground. So when my unbelief is challenged, I want to respond rightly. Jesus should offend all of us sometimes. He should offend you at times. He should offend your fleshly nature. 
Because you're allowing the kingdom of light to press in in the midst of the recesses of your heart and your soul where there is still darkness and there is still unbelief. And so He's pressing in and He's making known to you that here is an area of sin. And that root is unbelief. And so I want to respond to that offense well with repentance and faith. I want to be pressed in. Not all at once, Jesus. But by degrees. Let me know what needs to be rooted out in my life. Where unbelief has taken a hold. He will offend us. But it's also true that He will offend others through us. Or He should, at times been talking about it over these weeks, our created identity, our identity in Christ, our identity in union with Him, our identity as those who have been saved in Christ, and part of that identity is that you and I are ambassadors in this world. We are to be light in the midst of darkness, and the darkness doesn't like the light. And so as Christ is working in us, and as Christ is working through us, there should be times where people are offended. It happened to Jesus. That You'll notice that He continues on in ministry all the way to Calvary and beyond. How does He do that in the face of, of such opposition and such hatred and such disregard? Because... He did it by knowing what awaited him. He knew that he was on his way to glory. He knew what eternity was. He knew what awaited him in the presence of his Father. So we know what awaits us. So we can say with the Apostle, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. It's just slight momentary affliction. Remembering that will keep you joyfully serving Christ in this world, keeping your eyes fixed on eternity. This is just slight momentary affliction. Just a little trial, just a little cross bearing before I get there. I can help a Christian mother. Despite all the challenges of wrangling kids who are breeding grounds for sin. I can help an elder Serving sheep, though you're tired and burdened by the struggles of those under your care, can help you to shine forth the light of Christ as you're working at auto owners or a student at Michigan State University. At times you'll offend people. Your kids won't like your discipline at times, or maybe always. Your parishioners will call you meddlesome sometimes. You're Co-workers will, mark, will mock you as a holier-than-thou person. 
Your fellow students may call you a bigot. Christ offends. But you can keep going. Because you know what awaits you. Eternal perspective is the surest way to continue faithfully in the present. I have two great concerns for the church in our age. I think we have had the great blessing that has been uncommon throughout church history here in America where we've kind of lived in a bubble. And what we have experienced as Christians is unlike any other generation of Christians have experienced. But that that bubble is shrinking and there are holes that are being poked in it and it seems to be deflating. My first great concern is that we hold on to the truth so that we can pass it on to the next generation. My second concern is that we not just hold on to that truth, but that we actively labor and proclaim and stand upon that truth. And in the history of the church, that seems to be much harder. There's a reason throughout the Scriptures that there's this constant refrain of be courageous, stand firm. Why we're commissioned to be ambassadors, we're told to be Light, we're told to press together forward. We need to make sure that we're not the cause of the offense as we do so. We always want to search our manner. We always want to search our method. But if we represent Christ in this world as the ambassadors that we were meant to be, then as our sovereign gave offense, so when He shines through us into the lives of others, some will be offended. But here's the great hope from this text. I think here they are, all of these family members and all of these neighbors that are gathered in this synagogue and Jesus reads the Word to them. He preaches to them and they are offended by Him. And it seems as if that's the close of the book. That's the end of the story. Some of those that were offended in that very room will come to saving faith down the road. Mary will bow in worship to her Son for all of eternity. James, Jesus' brother, will give his life as a martyr for the faith, becoming one of the early leaders in the Christian church, will give his life for his brother because his brother gave his life for him. We have a sovereign Lord who sits above that is Savior who has all authority, all might, all wisdom. And He's our Savior. And He's working out His purposes in this world through you and I, the church, as we gather together and as we go out into the world. And He is worthy of all of your trust. He is worthy of all of your hope. He is worthy of all of your faith. 
So we say, Lord Jesus, we believe. But help us in our unbelief. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we exalt you this morning. Let you and the Son and the Spirit reign on high. That you are accomplishing your purposes in this world. We give praise, O Son, to you that you have all authority in heaven and on earth. In you is hidden all knowledge and all wisdom. And from that authority and in that wisdom, you have chosen to give your life as a ransom for many. What grace has been given to us. What encouragement for our souls. We pray where there is unbelief in this room and in our hearts and in our souls that you would root it out. That your grace would flow like streams of living water. And that it would produce life where there is but death. That it would bring light where there is but darkness. That you might receive all the more glory from those created in your very image. To give you glory for all of eternity. In Christ's holy name we pray. Amen.